Welcome to the Evolution Exchange USA podcast. We're bringing together the best technical leaders to talk about the industry passions and challenges they're facing. I'm Amy Clemson from Evolution Recruitment Solutions, and I help connect businesses with top tech talent. And today, I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by Russell Green at Cell Signaling Technologies and Rahul Kadam at AXA to discuss the topic of building an agile environment in an enterprise company. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Rahul, do you want to kick us off? Hey, thanks, Amy. Um, so my name's Rahul Kadam. I've been working in various data areas for the last 15 years. Uh, I've recently been uh, working as a division lead for an analytics engineering company, FixXL. Uh, we're a big PNC insurance company. Um, and we've been going through a huge amount of transformation in terms of technology, but more so around processes and how we deliver to our clients. So I'm excited to be here and uh, having this conversation with you guys. Awesome. Thanks for that, Rahul. Um, we're going to now go to Russ. Russ, if you don't mind just giving us a bit of an introduction on yourself. Yeah, thank you, Amy. Thank you, Rahul. Uh, so uh, I'm Russ Green. I'm Enterprise Architect for Boston Area Biotech. I've spent my uh, career of 30-odd years um, in the biotech industry, IT around Boston, and uh, and I've been actually at Cell Signaling Technology since 2004 when we were a very young company. So I've had the opportunity to uh, help us grow through uh, ERP migrations and lab informatics migrations and web migrations, and uh, and now I get to be enterprise architect and uh, be the the shepherd of many cats. Amazing, thanks, Russ. Okay, so now we've established a context for each of you. Let's move on to the topic in focus. So you've all given me um, questions or statements around building an agile environment in an enterprise company. So I'm going to work around the room um, asking each of you to pose your questions and the reason behind it. So we're going to get started with Russ. So Russ, your first kind of subtopic was allowing tech tactical independence of teams whilst maintaining strategic alignment across the team. Do you want to delve into that a little bit deeper and we can get started on that one? Well, sure. So, uh, I mean, agility in and of itself means you have these small independent teams. They're led by a product owner. The product owner has their stakeholders and their mission and their roadmap uh, is all driven by their stakeholders at the same time. Uh, we also have initiatives that we need to drive across the enterprise in order to deliver something that adds value in one corner of the enterprise. We need to drive change through other corners of the enterprise. And that's just functionally. There are other places where we need strategic alignment as well, uh, you know, from, uh, for example, architecture, that, right? Uh, you know, teams may want to make their own decisions based on their own needs, but we also need to manage things like uh, IT diversity, right? How many different tools do we want in-house that effectively do the same thing and those types of... And I think the fundamental challenge here is actually uh, a balance of power and a collaboration challenge where we, you know, we have all of these teams that, you know, want to uh, run independently, but uh, we also have an interest in behaving like one enterprise so that's the background for it great thanks russ rahul have you got kind of anything to add on that from from your experience yeah definitely i think that is uh, that is the big challenge for you know, the enterprise because uh, i think uh, typically before you know any enterprise goes through a dual transformation uh, what i've typically experienced is you know there's, there's been monolithic structures that support you know deliveries 
to to you know internal clients, external clients. There's monolithic structures that support uh, you know just sort of like as mentioned the 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 architectural integrity across what you're delivering, uh, maintaining you know diversity in terms of tooling we have, but you know making sure that there's standardization around what sort of tooling you're using, so there's not too much you know sort of like variability in what you're delivering. I think when we transform what we've seen as we're trundling in agile transformation. In a couple of instances recently, especially, is is the challenge that those two uh, tend to become uh, a little bit of an antithesis of what you're trying to do. So essentially, to agile as you're trying to deliver something quickly, but then having a huge dependency on an you know an architecture function or some other security function, for example, that you need to you know prove or 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 solve something and get an answer that's resolve that dependency before you can. Do but the first thing why the Agile team would start out is to deliver quite deliberate in a much more bespoke sort of lane. Um, that sort of kind of defeats itself. Um, there are certain patterns that we've been kind of experimenting with recently that have kind of helped allow us to help sort of resolve that. And um, we've and I can I can speak about that if you know if we want to go ahead and kind of dive deep straight away into it. But that's very really how I see it. I'm actually really interested in the patterns that you've found that help you sort of, uh, if you will, walk the line in, you know, this sort of fundamental, you call it conflict of interests, but it's a natural conflict of interest. What it, what have you found works? So what we've uh, recently, and this is the area that we're currently sort of working on. Um, so it's a, it's a model of transversal functions and capabilities versus actual delivery. So essentially, Think about it this way: uh, if if you need to deliver a, a product, right? So let's say the internal you're going to deliver a web app uh, that requires uh, data, some sort of front-end development, and you're developing a feature. Now, to to do that, you need some capabilities right, as within the team. So you need a standardized front-end framework or a back-end framework, a standardized data consumption tool or data storage technology. Those things we pull that out. We've pulled that out of the uh, actual teams. Teams that are delivering uh, the product, their their uh, responsibility structure, and created what transfers what they call a capability structure. So architecture, security, and the capabilities. So for example, uh, let's let's talk about a tool to do data transformation, right? A, a platform to do data transformation. So a team owns that capability. It works with architecture. It works with security. To get all the uh, the all the sort of like you know integrations, bringing it into the app environment, making sure it works with everything else integrates. The capability team deals with that. That's separate from the delivery teams. All the delivery teams have been doing is leveraging these capabilities to go deliver their their um, to deliver the endpoint. So now they work at different cadences. There's uh, there is dependency still, but they're reduced dependencies because capabilities are always evolving. And they are, uh, the, the delivery teams are getting capability uh, support as it's evolving through their delivery life cycle. So those are some of the things we've seen that that are kind of taking like some responsibility structures away from delivery teams, making it less of a dependency and having an external team that's managing through these transfers of function. We call them capability teams. Um, there are other terms we use them to uh, to the high the term doesn't come to mind. A uh, chapter, you know, like a chapter and a chapter lead. As we call them, um, and they define like you know what that capability should do, what are the parameters within which you should use that capability. But the actual delivery teams just then leverage those capabilities. 
they're not responsible for managing that capability itself. Interesting. So you have, for example, a cross-cutting user interface team and user experience team, a cross-cutting database data persistence team, a cross-cutting integrations team, and your scrum teams that are functionally focused are just wiring those capabilities together and driving work through your cross-cutting capabilities teams. Right. So yeah, so the capability teams manage it, that manages the platform, manages the you know, all of the difficulties that makes that platform work in the enterprise. But the delivery teams don't have that responsibility. Their responsibility is to deliver. Now, so let's say the capabilities and the construction, right? If, if your capabilities don't exist or we're going through a, a, a change in platform or tool to that capability, um, it is the capability team's responsibility to provide what the interim solution is. But the delivery teams are not worried about those things. The delivery teams just have the engineers on their teams that use these capabilities and deliver. That helps you. So your center, you, you've you've got almost a center of excellence where you're determining one architecture for user interface, one architecture for data persistence, and so forth. Exactly. Yeah. We've what we've also done is to the you see you go to the next layer within that, right? Uh, with the layer of design patterns. Uh, what we've seen in the past is we kind of like the first step when we did we, uh, the capability teams also tried to define the design patterns and say this is how you design things. Um, that created a little bit of uh, a bottleneck because you need to then have a much fully functional, well-stocked capability team to be available to all the delivery teams. You do. That's right. So then what we what we basically did was we had a soft guardrail and hard guardrail situation and really let the delivery teams own their own designs and design patterns they implement as long as they stay within certain guardrails which were important to us. For us, that was data security, uh, you know, role-based access control for data, uh, and making sure, you know, any URLs, basically just security. Security was a big thing. because we were Well, security is always a big thing. And it is probably, I mean, nobody on a functional team wants to take the time to think about security because the users don't care. The users aren't asking for security. Yeah. They just want to be able to do what they need to do. So you're right. Total cost optimization, security, uh, data access for analytics, right? All of those cross-cutting concerns are very hard to drive, I find, architecturally through many teams that are more functionally focused. Um, out of curiosity, uh, you know, uh, what you say is interesting. When you have, so do you, I mean, because both of us are actually deploying capabilities into enterprises, right? We are not working for software companies. We are working, I'm working for a biotech company and uh, we have products. We actually look like an old school manufacturing company. We do product development, we do validation, we do a tech transfer into a manufacturing operation, and then we manufacture, distribute globally, right? So we look like an old school manufacturing company. Uh, you know, how does it work for you in a, from a support perspective when something breaks? Like what happens and do you have to engage a lot of people from across multiple teams? I think that's a great question. And I think this is, um, that is the sort of like the Achilles heel of this approach. Right. What that means is, what that, so what we found out is um, we'd have, it, it, it comes at a higher OPEX. So essentially there are two types of issues that can have, happen in production. There are functional issues, right? So the functionality you're delivering, the features you're delivering, the product you're delivering has some kind of functional issue. The functional teams that are delivering these functionalities are the best suited teams to resolve these issues. 
what that means also, you know, operationally, you need to maintain a team for all the products you've delivered. And uh, so your delivery may look slightly different than how the support structure looks like. So it requires uh, more of a, it sort of goes into the point I'm going to later make around ownership, right? Defining product ownership is important because ownership then defines who requests for the OpEx money to maintain the functional uh, the functional uh, support teams for each of these products. Uh, when the OpEx becomes an issue, right, the operational cost becomes an issue, uh, they need to be combined. And that's where you know, the issues start to operate. So we, we've tried to draw a balance, not always successfully, I may say, to kind of build these teams out in a way that there is a functional focus and functional support. Uh, but now the other kind of issue where, the, where there's an issue with the capability, when right? the platform's down, uh, that has been very clearly identified. Those are actually not the issues we have because the capability teams are fairly uniformly defined. Their responsibility structures are fairly clear because the ownership lies within the IT teams, within the technology teams, within the organization, which tend to be more often than not more stable than the functional uh, ownership and the functional business. So that's how we manage it. It's come at a cost of the OPEX to maintain those product teams and provide support for that. Yeah, you know, it's funny you should say that, Robo, because really what we're talking about fundamentally is the trade-off between velocity and the ability to deliver fast for a customer who knows what they want and all of those other things that we know that we care about. Stability was what you just called out. Before that, you called out security, right? Those all fall into general consideration because the user isn't asking for them, right? As the enterprise architect, I know that we care about them, but the users don't know. And the user now, when we, when we establish straight agile, you know, we put a product owner in charge of the workload on a team and that person comes from the business. They don't come from IT, right? So they are deeply rooted in the challenges that the business is facing, but they're not deeply rooted in what it takes to make an IT system really, shall we say, work and continue to work, to sustain into the future at appropriate cost, at appropriate supportability at appropriate performances and scales, right? They're not thinking those thoughts, but they are also driving the work. So how do you drive work into your work streams for continual architectural evolution across platforms? How do you manage technical debt? Yeah, that, that is definitely um, a challenge, especially in a, in a company, you know, which so we work, you know, I work in an insurance company in, to get business ownership, to have them be doing underwriting as their job, and then say, okay, hey, you're going to come in and also you know, own a product has been the biggest challenge. Um, we've internally looked for, uh, you know, as we were hiring internally these products, we were looking for people who can who wanted to experience something different, you know, get out of there, sort of like underwriting, but to bring that underwriting function knowledge um, to do product ownership, it typically ends up being IT teams take ownership right and act in it's they act in um proxy to the business customer uh that's that's essentially what what has happened from a technical debt standpoint i think what we found has worked well is if we provided the right if the capabilities are structured well and the parameters within the capabilities are structured well it's allowed us to actually deliver with minimal technical debt sometimes that requires us to change the definition of what technical debt is and uh that yeah, and then also it kind of comes to an understanding of whether certain things, like for example, storage. Right? How much data do you want to store? 
sometimes, you know, we, we, I mean, I, you know, I've worked long enough where we knew that it's your applicate data that was technical data. Uh, but now in today's world, you can replicate it as much as you want. That's not technical data anymore, right? But that allows us to deliver something in a much more um, bespoke manner as long as you have a single source of you know, record somewhere uh, that you, you can always refer back to. Um, so I know there's, but it is, it is, that is the biggest question, the technical data aspect of it, having an, having an understanding of it, an acknowledgement of it, an appreciation of what that technical data is, then being ready to spend the money to go, go fix it. There's always been a battle with that, and that's, that I don't, I don't, don't have a right answer for that one. Yeah. So we've sort of gone the other way at CST where, uh, primarily driven because when we have a support issue, we want the support issue to be driven by a single team. In other words, we want every team to be able to uh, operate as as basically independently as possible from a run perspective. So what this has led us to is a couple of things. Number one is uh, tightly integrated, loosely coupled, with emphasis on loosely coupled major platforms. So our Scrum teams are organized by major platform, or if you prefer the term IT program, ERP would be an example. Lab informatics for us would be an example. Manufacturing systems would be an example. Uh, customer relationship management, HRIS, right? It, it's at that level. And when there's data flowing or dependencies across systems, we try to minimize real-time dependencies. We want to go for streamed eventual consistency, manage latency in order to ensure that any system, any platform, especially things like the web, can continue to operate even if everything else is down. Now, it's complicated because there are certain capabilities like sales tax, for example. Somebody's checking out on the website. You need your tax module to be responsive or you can't tell your end user what the sales tax charges are. Maybe you can estimate it, maybe you can't, right? But we want to create each one of these platforms to be as independent as possible. And therefore, we pull all of the capabilities in. And our own transition began maybe six years ago to Agile where we brought in a bunch of consultants, we organized the Agile teams, we assigned product owners, platform owners, and we said go. And this was a big emphasis on autonomy, uh, enablement, and velocity, right? And things fell by the wayside, right? The things that fell by the wayside were, for example, things like um, uh, architectural alignment. Everybody starts doing their own things, finding their own ways of building things based on what they like. One team's using Boomi for integration, and the other team is writing their own integrations in Python, right? I mean, diversity everywhere you look. One team's writing microservices in Nuxt, and another team's writing, you know, Java Spring microservices, and, you know, we you know, do you want that level of diversity well sometimes it comes at a cost right sometimes it comes at a sustainability and supportability cost you can't take somebody from one team and scale them up for another team without retraining right um and you don't get as much reuse maybe as you want out of some of the more foundational capabilities that you would want to be able to reuse so there are definitely costs to that and in exchange you get autonomy velocity and honestly as a senior manager it's easier because like all you have to do is worry about your customers that said what we've done more recently to try and address these problems is we've established uh, a cross-cutting architecture team where we bring together 
uh, a representative, a senior architect from each platform. Each platform is guaranteed to pony up somebody. So it needs to be a senior person. can't be the person who they consider to be expendable. Uh, it has to be the person who actually knows and is responsible and is for accountable, all of those pieces rolling up together. If they can't give you a components diagram, they're probably not the right person for that. If they can't tell you what the data model is or where the data is, they're probably not the right person, right? And so we have all these people sitting around the table. And what we're trying to do now is uh, drive through... Uh, you know, if you will, top level concern by top level concern, what do we want our principle based standard to be? And what do we want our underlying patterns to be? How do we want authorization and authentication to work? What has to be true about it for every platform? What are our preferred patterns, right? When we say uh, that we want, uh, you know, break fix to work, what are our underlying principles? Right. And, you know, so for example, how, you know, do we have an SLA on notifications when something breaks? What do we expect to be written to a log? And then the patterns are, well, how do we want you to go about writing to the log? And there we can give people more autonomy. But our approach to trying to get alignment is actually to make gaps from standard visible to the CIO and to her direct reports. In other words, okay. we're really just a transparency organization. We're like the internal audit for IT architecture. Yeah. So let me ask you a question about that. Uh, so how do you approve patterns? Is, do you guys have like a central governing body that sits together and everyone just kind of votes? So what we do is, yes, we write it down and people have, so we our standards go through, uh, you know, sort of a process where we start with just like, what are we trying to achieve, right? In the case of something like, uh, you know, authentication. We, you know, we want access to platforms to be manageable. We want to be resistant to attack, right? There's a finite set of things that we know that we need to achieve from a security perspective, right? Any one of these, right? There's some a set of things that we want to achieve. We write a standard that we think speaks to that, and we circulate what we think the goals are and what we think the standard should be that everybody should have to adhere to, and we circulate it and we say comment on it or, you know, in a very speak now or hold your peace, right? You know, silence is acceptance and that's the expectation. And then we circle around. And if we can't come to agreement, then, you know, then we, as an EA, I have two options. Either I can scale back the ask, which is usually the way that I go, or I can try and escalate. But escalation has problems because what we're really after here is participation with their souls. We're not looking for uh, people to be managed into compliance. We're looking for people to Please fall into the fear of completing a task. Yeah. Exactly. We need people to volunteer in. We need people to buy into the truth that sustainability, security, cost, all these things are actually everybody's problem and that we're trying to solve a problem together. That's interesting. Yeah, that's cool. We have, uh, so we do in ours, so we have a similar sort of process in ours. So, so I, you know, I don't belong to the architecture organization, but I play a role there. Um, just because, uh, you know, I have to have a little bit of a cross, uh, cross-functional, uh, I've always had a little bit of a cross-functional role. Now, one of the challenges we've seen, so we've, we've, we have these uh, bodies that meet weekly, go through a bunch of uh, our design patterns, go approve them, don't approve them, go through a voting process. So everyone gets an opportunity to sit together and question. Now, if, if, if a business request has come through that requires a new pattern, but the business request still needs to be delivered. How do you manage 
the velocity of approving a new pattern to match up to what's been expected, or do you just set different expectations, or do you deliver something and then retroactively fix the question around technical debt? Well, so first off, as soon as we come out with a standard that everybody agrees to, the next step is that everybody has to catalog their technical debt. Where we define as technical debt is anything that you are running that does not meet the standard. We have Active Directory as our uh, authentication standard. Any, We need to know every platform out there that you're running that requires authentication that is not using Active Directory, and we want to know what it's running. And there are platforms out there that are running their own internal authentications, right? That would just be one example of kind of how we do it. Now, the urgency is an interesting question. So right now, we have a lot of urgency around global data privacy, largely because of uh, you know, increased tightness of regulations coming out of China in particular, right? This is well-known China data protection policy uh, coming down in June and with another deadline in November. In addition to what we're using as an opportunity to tighten up how well we're really complying with the spirit of GDPR, right? Uh, the European data protections. For something like that, we actually get the CIO and uh, other stakeholders, because the product owners don't report to the CIO. So we need to get them on board as well. We go through our leadership committee and we get, uh, you know, uh, let's just call our risk management partners to say, this is, this is your priority, get this done. And then we report collectively. And my job, I do a lot of heat maps where I sort of uh, rate you know, program by program, how are we doing on, and it's just, you know, red, yellow, green, uh, you know, or maybe a, a one to five where five is couldn't be better. And one is we really just are getting no traction here. And then I just, the only thing I can do is make it visible and transparent and use it as a medium for communication that said, nobody wants to be the red, nobody wants to be the yellow, nobody, nobody wants that. So even just the simple act of transparency drives people to participate. And by the way, the reasons people don't participate are nuanced and complicated, but very often it's just because they think they need to focus their attention somewhere else because they're being pulled in multiple directions. And one of the values of having been doing this for so long is I've been in both seats, right? I can empathize. So I can help them get where they need to get. And I can tell them that they're a yellow or a red before I've shown it to anybody else and drive participation. Because remember, the goal again is voluntary participation. The goal is not to strong our people into compliance. The goal is to get them to to do what they need to do voluntarily because they believe. Right. Right. That's interesting. That is interesting. Okay. Uh, so I do want to sort of like kind of you know move back into uh, the more of the agile team and responsibility structures within the 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 agile team uh, area. So there is there is you know we are sort of one of the things that we've uh, had some challenges with or we are sort of trying to define and figure out is ownership structure within within an agile team. So you've got the product owner that owns the product. But doesn't technically uh, typically own the technology components that we fit, not not the actual technology, but what's been developed and developed. And we've got tech leads that we envision should be the owner of any technical component that gets delivered, right? design the actual pieces of it. Uh, 
but you know, it, it requires a little bit of due diligence trying to do that, and 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 requires due diligence on what the product ownership looks like versus technical ownership, and there could be a little bit of that, uh, you know, just back and forth between those two because somebody prioritization driving that's happening on a product ownership standpoint may not align with what the technical ownership looks like within that um, within their natural team. So, yeah, any sort of like. You know how you see you've got, you know you guys have structured agile teams. Where does this ownership lie, and how you've tried to kind of manage you know, product ownership prioritization versus the technical prioritization within that product itself? Yeah, can you repeat the the question in there? I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. The question was basically the ownership structure, right? So there are two different ownership structures in agile team. That is the actual business product ownership, right? That comes from the product owner, and there's the technical components within it, right? Which comes from, I believe, a technical lead within. The, the 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 agile team who <clears throat> defines the design defines the products you know, defines the, the 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 technology components and owns it essentially right should yeah and it, so how you know how have you guys driven ownership structures that way and within agile teams and uh what sort of successes or you know or not so much success not so successful if you guys have had to deal with right so it's funny you should say that so actually we have three roles who are really playing in that conversation one is the lead architect one is the platform owner and who reports usually into the cio right whereas the technology leader reports usually into the platform owner and then the uh, um the uh product owner reports somewhere into whatever business unit Right, and they typically have stakeholders from different business units, and they do have different responsibilities. Uh, that said, what makes it work or not work at the end of the day is the quality of their collaboration and their ability to hear each other. And uh, so we have cases of both. We have cases where you know, because the product owner is very focused on like what do their stakeholders need, what does the business need. What are the weak business process? Right? And the, the the technical lead is very focused on how are we building it? How many microservices do we have? What do we really just want to retire because we don't want to have to run it anymore? You know, uh, uh, where are we getting all of our support demands from? Like what's breaking all the time or what's just inherently broken because of the way we built it, right? That's where their head is. And the platform owner is like, all about like, who do we have on the team? How much money are we spending? How much money do we have to spend? And what are all of our budgets? And all of those will lead you to different conclusions about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. And so in a collaborative, like a deeply collaborative environment, they come to an agreement that balances all three of those. And there's no, as soon as you're like in this gray area where you're like trying to balance multiple things in a complicated multivariate equation, there's no one right answer. There's only pretty good answers and pretty bad answers, right? You know, and and everything in between, right? It's all shades of gray at that point. And the hope is that they arrive at a pretty good answer uh, because they're just working well together. And the product owner hears what the architect is saying and it's like, you're right, that's a problem. Let's write some stories around technical debt and get those prioritized and pull those into the next sprint. And uh, and the meanwhile, the architect is hearing that and saying, uh, you know what, you're right, we can delay some of this technical debt and really focus on some functional priorities, right? And, you know, meanwhile, you know, somebody on the team has an idea for an innovation sprint. I want to try this because, you know, 
the road to value, it's not a straight line, but I think it could be transformative for how we do things in the future. And they bring it forward and the, you know, all, everybody sits around and says, yeah, let's do a spike because that's kind of fun and interesting. And that the point is that it's all driven off of the collaboration and everybody seeing. And then we've got other teams where for whatever reason, the people just don't want to work together. And when that happens, there's almost nothing you can do to fix it. You can say, well, your responsibilities are this, and we're going to say we're going to take 25% of the time and put it on technical debt and 50% of the time and put it on forward. You know, you can try and do it by responsibilities, but that breaks the agile model because now you're trying to do like structured management of something that's really just supposed to be agile. Agile depends more than anything on a functional team and functional communications, in my experience. Yeah, no, that, that definitely is right. And I think that has been the biggest challenge we've had is changing the mindset. Yeah, one of the, I think the challenges I, I kind of face on day-to-day basis as we were doing this transformation piece is moving away from that mindset of, um, you know, this is your sort of, you know, responsibility, and this is my responsibility, that is yours don't speak over here or, you know, I'm going to decide over here or I'm not going to decide in this particular part of this. You make that decision. And I think to drive, you know, we, we that has been a big challenge for us. I think it had to be more of a culture change because um, we came from, you know, fairly monolithic as the waterfall delivery. Everyone has a role to play. They go do it and they throw it over the wall and then you walk over and then someone else does their bit and, you know, and, and so that has definitely been the challenge. We continue to struggle with it. Um, certain areas, certain teams, that has gotten better. Uh, there is a little more collaboration. Like I said, there's more ownership taking across the board, um, knowing that this is a product we own and not just the product owner from a functional standpoint. Everything we do here is part of our, you know, what we are putting out, not just this little piece of document that I created a spec on. Um, that definitely is the challenge uh, that we face. So no, this is good to hear that you know some similar challenges you face, and I think more collaboration seems like it's going on where you are, uh, which is which is great. Um, one of the other key things I wanted to sort of touch upon where, where we've kind of found some success uh, is you know, so I mean I come from a data space, and a lot of the technologies we use have always been these monolithic license-based huge infrastructure, you know, huge platforms that require you know, huge amounts of infrastructure, everything costs a lot of money. And then all of these platforms are niche skills, essentially. So you have to go out in the market and find, uh, you know, find skill sets that you know, know how to you know, work with Informatica or App Initio or whatever the platform is. Um, and now we would take that and then try to stand up uh, uh, multiple product teams. So you mean each of these teams are gonna have these niche skills somehow identified brought into the environment and then made part of these teams to go then deliver. One of the reasons why we always had more spread out allocations of resources, where, which is against completely against the Agile model, right? Uh, where you're, you know, you're, you're working 10% of this project, 10% of some other project, 20% of some other project. Uh, one of the ways we've seen, we've been able to, and this, this is kind of like a need to allow us to move faster, a need for us to get more commodity resourcing, then playing to, to enable an agile process, then pushing that into the architecture to define more how do we then get tools and platforms. And we found there's been a huge movement in open source uh, data technologies in recent times, especially with the advent of ELT, 
uh, cloud native compute. Um, and we've seen that the more and more open source frameworks we've brought in, which require people who can write open format code in SQL and Python, which is, becomes a much more uh, commodity skill set, or you can find more of them, uh, more of these uh, individuals out in the market that you can then hire and situate them on multiple teams, and then they can work in these open formats. And once someone leaves, you're not losing a niche skill, and you know you're you're, you're getting back. You know you can go hire another Python developer or another SQL developer. And I think I feel I feel like to a lot of it, it is a hard sort of message for me to you know, present to some you know within my leadership because of real insurance is that has been transformational for us in terms of being able to staff and run these teams uh, uh, in a much more efficient optics-wise, cost-wise, as well as just being, uh, having availability resources. I don't know if you guys have dabbled with uh, open source frameworks and they, they have had any sort of positive impact on how you deliver it, what you deliver it in an agile way. Yeah, so for sure. Well, to start with, we are, you know, we most of what we build today we are deploying to AWS and I'm, you know don't quote me on this but under almost every AWS service is a former open source project right open search goes back to Elastic uh, you know uh, uh, their document DB you know looks a lot like you know uh, Mongo or you know I mean a lot there, there's a lot underneath every single one of their services that looks a lot like OSS, but most of what we're building into are actually AWS services when we're talking about uh, bespoke build-out, the exception being our commercial platforms. So our ERP Oracle, right? Uh, our um, our uh, product information management and MDM is all in, uh, you know, Stebo. Uh, so we, and that, you know, as soon as you've done that, you've started to bring in um, niche skill sets. You know, some of them are big niche skill sets like Salesforce, right? I mean, they're everywhere, but they're not inexpensive, right? They're, they're expensive. If you're willing to pay for them, you can find the skill sets at least, right? And hopefully Salesforce continues to be a player in the marketplace for as long as we want to use them. And when, you know, when that starts to change, you have to be on the cutting edge of that. In terms of true open source, uh, we see more of it in some of the edgier computing groups. So like we run a bioinformatics group, they're all about the true open source because that's their world, right? It's all science, machine learning algorithms. It's all very intertwined between commercial and academic. And that's where we tend to see a lot of it. Um, outside of that, we are mostly running either commercial platforms or building on our own on top of AWS, which looks oddly like looks oddly like a, a lot of open source under the hood, right? What's the story? Right about yeah, you're right about the commercial platforms because I I can I can echo that. And it's not for the lack of you know our organization having trying to build some of our you know core business functions, uh, trying to build platforms you know in house, uh, basic platforms. But that just meets with very limited success, uh, considering the amount of investment that might take for a, an organization that's core competencies and building that tech platform. Um, and it's it's actually doing you know, whatever business they're doing. So now we we faced similar challenges. So you're right, the edgier the, the bits that are away further away from the core competency of the organization, there is a role that uh, with the open source plays. Uh, that's the area I've mostly worked. Because you're working for 
mostly guys I've worked with insurance companies all my career. Um, so yeah, that 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 is act that makes sense. Oh, a lot of the business logic that people are building it to microservices, a lot of that's just getting built in Python today. And there's code libraries there that all qualify as open source. I will say that. So if you look deep enough, there's open source everywhere in every single program. No, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Those are the core of it. You know, you're probably writing doc make Java. Yeah, exactly. So I was surprised, actually, given that you do come from insurance to see that you were asking about OSS in open format uh, as uh, accelerators in natural transformation. It is a, it has been uh, <laughs> a bit of a, a crusade of mine, to say the least, you know, in my, in my organization uh, to try to drive that, uh, where we see, because one of the key, key challenges I have as a resource manager, you know, in addition to doing the designs and patterns that we have to put out. I also manage resources and constantly have to staff teams. Um, more niche skills, plat more platform-specific things, bigger, you know, we have always had a challenge trying to staff teams that way. And a lot of success out in the market across the world, because we're a fairly global company, and so we can hire talent everywhere. Um, we found a lot of success in trying to get People working on open formats, and you know, and 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 they always have a challenge trying to work with platforms. One of the key projects I'm currently uh, leading uh, uses one of them, one of those platforms that we brought. We brought in DBT, sort of it. For data quality, absolutely. Is it data? Uh, no, no, this, no, it's a data build tool. So it's a transformation platform that basically you're writing all your. your it's a design time tool. It's so you're designing your transformation. Uh, so DBT, yeah. You're designing your transformation, and then whatever your native computer, you're just pushing it down onto the computer. Whatever you know, it could be you know, S3 or you know, Spark Plus is running on S3 or, or or another database, or Snowflake, or whatever you have. Um, so we that that's one of the projects that I'm currently running. Fairly, you know, it's going to get done. Hopefully, you know, it's going to be really successful. But what we found is I was able to easily build a team to do that migration versus if I had part in a platform, uh, but then I have to go out and look for new skills and always been a challenge. But you're right, coming from an insurance background, it's risk averse. We need to buy a platform that, you know, 15 different companies have bought or or, or license and, you know, it works. You know, they, they assume all the risk in terms of support. You, we don't need to do any of that. Uh, we can do our business of insurance. Uh, that's what we focus on. So that that's been the you know the the selling that I had to do internally, uh, but I think we're getting some positive results, and I feel like those results are being seen. Um, to first of all, feeling cost savings, right? I mean, it's really like when I mean, you don't have to license, you're using an open open source platform. Uh, complete uh, the cost savings are huge, so that's one way to communicate that out to uh, into a business that's financial services. And and secondly, like I said, the resource is cheaper and readily available. More importantly, readily available. But yeah, yeah, for sure. Great stuff. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much. That was really, really insightful. Um, we're going to leave it there today. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to Russ and Rahul for providing their insights into this topic. And thank you for listening. <laughs>